This is the Retail Podcast, your B2B show for the best thought leadership in the industry, bringing you education, information, and inspiration, only on market scale. On that third mega trend, where consumers really have taken over the shopping channel, they're walking into stores a lot more informed. We don't hide from the fact that retail is difficult. You know, every day is a challenge, but that excites the customer. They love that. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Market Scale Retail Podcast. I'm your host, Daniel Litwin, the voice of B2B. And folks, thank you so much for joining us on another episode of the podcast. I'm going to point you in a few directions to make sure you're getting all the Market Scale content that you desire. Make sure that you're subscribing on Apple Podcasts and Spotify for a full catalog of previous podcasts as well as upcoming conversations. Just hit that subscribe button on either platform and you could subscribe to a few different umbrella channels, including Market Scale Radio, Market Scale Technology, and Market Scale Manufacturing. Make sure you're also going to our website, marketscale.com/industries. On there, you'll find plenty of information on our podcast network of shows with specific insights from the retail industry and more. So when you go there, you'll find plenty of articles, podcasts, and video pieces of content from a variety of B2B industries. On today's conversation, we are bringing insights that are applicable to honestly just about any business today, especially in brick-and-mortar retail. We're going to be chatting about how to find and embody leadership during a crisis. COVID-19 is just the most recent and universal example of a crisis that has demanded business owners find paths to success and survival, new paths especially. From something as large as a pandemic through the smaller company-specific crises that hit us when we least expect them, how should business owners approach their leadership style in these unexpected moments? Today, we're joined by Jackie Werblow. She's the founder and head coach of Convex Leadership. She's going to be giving us her thoughts and tips. And with more than 25 years of coaching and consulting of leaders from small startups to large Fortune 500 companies, she's developed a few key steps in her career as a leadership coach and is sharing them today on our podcast, helping us navigate what it means to be a leader in crisis. Jackie, welcome. Great to have you back on. How are you doing? Well, thanks, Daniel. It's great to be here. Doing great today. Fantastic. Good to hear. And it's definitely been a while since our last conversation. How have you been holding up since? Well, you know, I've been very busy actually working with so many clients who have found this to be a challenging time. And I thought it would be good to discuss the challenges that really go across retail, manufacturing, and so many of the other areas that that you work in on a daily basis. Absolutely. Yeah, I think these insights are going to be applicable to honestly just about any B2B industry leader, but I think there are some specifics that are important for retail as well, which is where we'll be honing in today. So obviously we're still in the middle of the COVID-19 pandemic, so let's stick with this context to start to sort of set the tone of our conversation. How has the pandemic in general refocused the need to strategically adapt leadership under crisis? And give us some examples of how that's uh, really just intersected with your work. You know, I think the most profound learning for me is how important it is to be able to take whatever information you have at hand and then your own business intelligence and the thoughts of people that are important to you to build solutions. 
In other words, none of us are ever going to have a moment of certainty about what we're going to do when we're facing something like the pandemic. But taking the information we have at hand is so important and then acting upon it because the moment of certainty never comes. So we can't sit around and wait. And I think that's what my clients have learned and those that are recovering today learned it very quickly and said, we have to adapt, we have to accept that we won't have all the facts and we have to do something. I was thinking about this as it applies to early days of e-com. You know, some of our most treasured retailers did nothing in the early days of e-com. They wanted to wait and see, to see what would happen to others that converted a portion of their traditional brick and mortar business to e-com. And so they sat back and waited. And the truth is when I think about my clients and the world at large, those that adapted early, those that said, let's take a chance with what we know to move forward are surviving so much better than those that said, let's wait. You know, someone famous in the 1970s, a theologian said, not to decide is to decide. And if we've learned anything in these last several months, we have to decide to do something. And we can always change how we do whatever it is we're setting out to achieve. But if we sit back and wait, then we're not moving forward at all. What do you think about that, Daniel? Yeah, I mean, that makes a lot of sense. It's often, you know, said there's an old adage, right, where um, I guess I don't remember the phrasing exactly, but I'm paraphrasing it here. Something to the extent of, you know, inaction is action, right? Like yeah. you were saying, or, um, you know, to be to be uh, silent or to uh, to not participate in moments of uh, of distress or in moments of uh, of sort of a great moral testing means that you are siding with the side of like the oppressor right now that's if we were making a broader conversation at sort of a, a macro uh, societal level but when you break that down to you know business leaders trying to make decisions about the future of their business in a moment of crisis, in a uh, moment where your decision-making is needed, if you don't do anything, that's as good as you doing something, you know, uh, in, in the worst way possible, I guess. Yeah, it's really about eliminating being reactionary. Right. If you can take the actions, you're in control. They may be actions that you come back and revisit at some point. You may make adjustments. You know, the, the word today is pivot. Be ready to pivot into a different path. But if you never get on the path, if you never take what you know and act upon it, you are going to play catch up forever. And not only your competitors, but your employees, your team members will be playing catch up as well because they won't know where it is you're planning on going. And so if we can, you know, Remember that action beats inaction. That's an important concept, and it's important to our leadership styles across retail and other businesses. What would you say are some of the most unique challenges of running a business that have uh, arisen because of this crisis? 
Well, one of them I know from speaking with so many of my clients during this time is that no one is an expert. There's no one that truly understands all of the implications of what we're all experiencing. And so, you know, some firms will put out a, a booklet or, a, or a, a quick article saying that they know the best practices for our current situation, but truth is we're all living them. We don't know what the best practices for dealing with this pandemic will be for our business until sometime in the future, because truthfully we're creating them. But again, if you have someone on your team who can synthesize information and who you know is a good thinker, someone who takes the long objective point of view and rely on them to help you synthesize the information you need, then you'll be better off. You'll be prepared to act. And again, particularly in the retail environment where, you know, the decisions generally are pretty long term. Retailers are deciding what product lines they're going to offer nearly two years out. So having to have someone who, who instead of taking that, all of the long-term data can truly bring together short-term data and long-term impact is going to be crucial. And the leaders that do that, that have a source inside that they can really rely upon to build the right decisions and the right plans based on the available information and no more than the available information are going to be in a far superior place. You know, Colin Powell has written on this a lot. And he has said, if you're waiting for 80 to 90% of the facts to act, you're going to wait too long. The window of opportunity is going to be closed. And again, if you think about retailers who have acted on as much information that's available and taken that to create future actions, they're the ones that are going to survive and are surviving today in today's world. And I know a visceral moment for you that reflects some of these split decision actions came during another obviously memorable, infamous national crisis, the 9-11 attacks on the Twin Towers. Can you give us a little context on that moment for you as a professional and some of the learning lessons it gave you in crisis response and some of the ways that it still influences your perspectives that you bring to your coaching today? Yeah, for sure. I was relatively new to consulting and coaching on September 11th, and I was on an airplane traveling to the Baltimore area. Oof, scary. Very scary. And, you know, as I was sitting there and as the pilot came on and gave us some information that certainly we had never heard, not giving any detail, just that we were going to be turning the plane around, an off-duty flight attendant was sitting next to me and she got up to go find out what was happening. And a woman came from across the aisle and sat down and asked me if I knew what was happening. Well, I had used the expensive phone system that was on the airplanes at that time and called home and learned the details. And the young woman asked me, what happens next? And my reaction based on my years of living was that we would likely be in a wartime situation. And I'll never forget her response because I think it has so much bearing on today. 
she said, how could we go to war? We're, we're not ready or prepared. And somehow I found the strength to explain to her that our military is always ready. And what I see in similarities from that situation to today is that our businesses were not ready for 9-11, but they had the strength of prior crises to rely on. And today's handling of our crisis depends on how we responded to every crisis we've faced in the past. And just as that young woman needed reassurance, all of our team members, all of our employees across all of our businesses need reassurance from their leaders. And so does the general public for that matter. And that's why communication is at the heart of everything we do in leadership. And in this time, over-communication is crucial. That woman sitting next to me who was probably in her first professional job traveling on business wasn't looking for an answer. She was looking for reassurance that there were leaders who would have answers or do a heck of a job about communicating the actions they were taking. And in the end today, that's what everyone is looking for, is reassurance, communication, and over-communication of how we're in this together and how we're going to face this uncertain future. And in the end, to me, that is the heart of leadership, is dealing with uncertainty in such a way that people believe that you will help them grow in the future. You will help them be effective in the future and you will help your business not only grow, but thrive and grow and be resilient enough to face each of these challenges, whatever the challenge in the future. So that's what I take from remembering about 9-11 sure. in terms of crisis management. None of us will ever forget the particular threat, the particular day, the pain of that day, and the pain that we have lived with since that day. And as we approach September now, perhaps that's why I've been thinking about it more than ever in this year, in this year of a new crisis facing us as we go into September. During your career, and this is really where we're going to hone in the conversation, you've developed some major takeaways, tips, and starting points for leaders uh, as they deal with a moment of crisis and how to craft their leadership to match that so they can not only support the business, but their employees and themselves as well. So I want to go ahead and walk through these with you and get your thoughts more specifically on how they apply to COVID and how they apply to leadership action in general. So there are five main steps, and we're going to get your full context on them. Let's go ahead and start with number one. Uh, and some of these things you've already mentioned slightly in your responses already, uh, but we're going to dig in a little deeper. So yeah, again, number one is take action, eliminate reaction. Again, take action, eliminate reaction. Why do you recommend against waiting to see what others are doing during crisis, even if that is a colleague company or a competitor or you know just the industry at large? 
Well, you know, I think it's no different than in any life situation. If you sit back too long, the opportunity is missed. The window of opportunity closes. Yes, another door may open, another window may open, but that first person through gets to set the standard of what's expected. And if you're the first person through the window and you're making decisions that are founded on as many facts as are available, then you have the greatest chance of success in the experiences that I've seen with my clients. And so you'll never be playing catch up if you're the person who takes the ball and runs through the, through the door to the goal, you know, make the analogy you want, but you want to act sooner than waiting until it's too late. And again, it comes down to that. There's never a moment of certainty. So take what's available and act so that your team isn't sitting there wondering what's next. And you also mentioned this uh, a little bit ago, but how would you say that this idea of taking action instead of reaction is reminiscent of some of the attitudes among retailers during the initial explosion of e-commerce? Because I think that's one of the most relatable moments of, of just, you know, for some companies a sort of rebirth, a phoenix moment for them, and for others, uh, just a a total annihilation because they didn't act. They just sort of reacted, and even when they did, it was much too late. So yeah, give us a little context on how this applies to that uh, moment for retail. So I'm thinking specifically of a conversation I had with a client some years ago in my early days of consulting, where this particular client, in visiting with their head of information technology said, e-com will be great for certain businesses, but most businesses, people want to touch the product before they even think about purchasing it. They want to have a relationship with the salesperson selling it to them, particularly if it's a high-end luxury product. And then he also said, we have to be very worried about the cost of e-com, of setting up the necessary technology, because in the end, all we're gonna do is cannibalize our business. It'll move from brick and mortar to the internet, but it won't expand the business. And this particular individual who was responsible for the technology for a very major retailer, was so confident of his point of view that he refused to acknowledge the possibility that the world would see the advantage of being online, able to shop 24 seven, 365 days a year, and to be able to take their time and evaluate the pluses and minuses of each product they looked at in the privacy of their own home, would not acknowledge it. That's one of the retailers that hasn't made it in its current format and and still has a presence, but nowhere near the presence in business that they had 15, 20 years ago. And the decision that he made 20 years ago for that company came back to haunt them in every perspective. And when they finally did become a retailer uh, of some import in the e-com space, The CEO said, 
The business we lost was because of our failure to evaluate the facts and think beyond our initial reach. And that's one of those things that I think relates here in ecom, but relates in terms of crisis management. You have to take the facts at hand and think beyond your immediate grasp. Think about implications for the future, but don't take so much time that you miss the window of opportunity. Love those insights. All right, number two of your main five tips, and this is another one that you sort of mentioned in passing a little earlier, and that is be prepared to act when you only have 60 to 70% of the facts. Why that number? Is there any research behind that? And how does that impact direction for a response? You know, knowing how much of the facts that you have and acting accordingly. Well, you know, ideally, we'd all like to have 100% of the facts sure, before right. we act. And yet, there's been research done, and a lot of it has been done by our military and by very large think tanks and the most substantially sized corporations in America that says the nuances between 60 and 80% of the facts is minimal. And there is even less difference in the nuances between 80% and 100%. So what does that say? Well, that says that somewhere between 60 and 80% is the right amount of information and nothing beyond that is really going to change the direction. Yes, it might influence one or two smaller components of the decision you make. It might affect a little bit of the timing of the decisions you make, but in the end, it's not going to have substantial impact on the outcomes. So therefore, getting if you have less than 60%, then you're really operating blindly. And if you have more than 80 to 85%, then you've probably waited very long and you may be playing catch up. So that based upon the analysis that the military has done, that the uh, large retailers have done, that very large think tanks have done, there's a nice corridor there at that 60 to 80% range. And if you can assure yourself that you have about that amount of fact to deal with, then you can work through a process and reach a good decision that should have stellar results. You know, I'd like to think that we all know that we can have a blink response to something. You know, that immediate reaction to something? Well, we don't want to make our decisions based upon that immediate reaction. But truth is, every executive does use their intuition in building the right course of action. When the CEO is thinking about the future, they are looking at every fact that is available in that 60 to 80% range. And then she is gonna rely upon what she knows from the set of experiences that she's had in life, in crisis management, in the workplace, and in outside the workplace as well. 
And there's the element as well of taking as part of those facts, mentorship and guidance from someone you trust, from your trusted associates, from other CEOs, from other individuals who have had to make tough decisions. And once you get that into the mix, you really have enough information to make sound decisions and to act. So why would you wait? The next tip that you recommend is being willing to pivot or course correct when more information is available. So this plays off nicely from the last one. Let's say you do have that 60 to 70%, then you get to 80 to 90, right? You get more information and all of a sudden the initial response is no longer adequate, it was misinformed, et cetera, et cetera. Do you find this is a tough one to hammer home for decision makers? Do you often find any resistance due to bruised egos? It kind of necessitates coming to terms with some of the action that you took not being sufficient. Is that a point of contention as you give your uh, leadership coaching? It absolutely is. No one wants to be wrong. Let's face facts. We all want to be right. And having the courage to say, you know, I think I've gotten this part of this decision wrong is really, really difficult. And it's difficult for any of us who have a healthy ego. But being adaptive and dynamic are critical components of versatile leadership. Having the resilience to say, you know, I think we need to course correct. And for this, I always remember a story in uh, Stephen Covey's Seven Effective Habits. And actually, it's the seven effective habits for a family that I recall most vividly. Because in that particular book, he speaks about pivoting and course correcting as normal events in life. And he points to the fact that an airplane leaving DFW course corrects, the pilot course corrects at least seven times before arriving at O'Hare. And so in that 850 mile flight, there are at least seven or more course corrections over a two and a half hour period of time. Well, if that's the case, and if a pilot who wants to get from point A to point B knows the advantage of course correcting, then certainly a CEO can adapt course correcting as well. And being a dynamic leader who's not afraid to say, we've tried this and now we need to try X. It does two things. It shows the integrity of their actions, that it's not being right at all costs that matters, but rather being effective and driving results. To be successful, you have to be willing to be transparent, resilient, and act with integrity. And in the end, that's what pivoting from one point to another is all about. You've acted upon the information, you've not been afraid to act, and you know the freedom that you have to course correct in the future. And I really like Stephen Covey's analysis of being willing to course correct because what it says is, does it really matter if you course correct seven times, if you, as long as you get to where you're going successfully? 
when you're expecting to be there and with the plane in one piece. Have you seen that adaptive approach and that introspective, uh, I don't know, sort of a ability to come to terms with your own failure occasionally, something that has really benefited clients of yours? And if so, do you have any specific examples there? Sure. You know, I, I have seen it. I'm thinking specifically here about a, a, a young CEO that I've worked with for a few years, and he's um, very able to be transparent when he needs to change paths. And he's not, he's not unwilling at all to say, you know what, I got this wrong. One of the things I've had to work with him on actually is it's not about saying you've got it wrong. It's about saying where we're heading next. And so one of the lessons I've taught him is that you can be transparent and say we're heading somewhere else. You don't necessarily have to take it on your shoulders all the time that this was not the result today isn't where you wanted to be heading. And I think being worried about saying I'm wrong gets in the way of making the pivot sometimes for some CEOs. Certainly with the young CEO I was talking about, he had to get over the fact that he thought he had to announce to the world that he was wrong. When in fact, all he had to do was say, we're changing. We're going to go in a new direction. Here's the reasons and here's where it's going to take us. So if the question about pivoting is really, does that mean I have to tell the world I've made a mistake? No. Your mistakes are private or responsibility for those mistakes can be private or public. The most important thing is to have that next stage of the plan. So again, you're going to take action and eliminate reaction. You're really living steps one and two all over again and constantly because leadership and planning and action are dynamic processes. Once you put some process in place, it still changes. That's why three-year plans change all the time and are always dynamic and moving forward. And crisis management is evolutionary. As more information is known, being the dynamic leader who's not afraid to say we need to pivot speaks to the values that you're constantly instilling in your team to be transparent and to act, to take action rather than inaction. All right. The next main chunk here, the next tip that you have for leaders in crisis is over communicating. This is one you've also brought up and one that really resonates with me. I've found that uh, in all of the best uh, I guess groups I've worked in from school to my professional career, when there is leadership that is straightforward and communicates a lot of the back end of what's happening with the company, direction of the company, it locks you in more to, uh, I guess, caring about what's going on, right? If you're in the dark, there's enough you know, personal conflict already that, that can arise out of a lack of communication. When there is that communication, that over-communication, I think it can create some authentic buy-in for the rest of the company that uh, I think a lot of leaders look for and often try to 
I don't know, force onto their employees when often it's just communication and uh, open dialogue that does the trick. So in your experience, why have you found over-communication is critical for team-building leadership, especially during a crisis? You know, I'm reminded of a time when I was new as a professional in the workplace. So, you know, we're talking a long time ago. But at that time, someone asked me, are you a mushroom or a flower? Hmm. And uh, I kind of looked at them and I said, <laughs> well, depends what your company's doing to you. Are you a mushroom or a flower? If you're a mushroom, you've been put into a dark place and you don't get any information. And, you know, you, you just grow in the dark dirt. And if you're a flower, well, then you're given the chance to have some visibility to what's going on in the organization. You're given the opportunity to flourish, to bloom, to, you know, to become a perennial that keeps growing back and bigger and with more flourish. And that that's what companies want is that they want their team members to flourish. And there is no such thing as too much communication during a period of crisis because people want to hear or they will make stuff up much like the mushroom that's in a dark room just kind of makes stuff up they don't know what's going on and so you know if people make stuff up then what you have is a problem with miscommunication or misinformation or false information at its worst so, you know, if you think you're a bit uncertain in decisions you're making, imagine being at the front line in a store, in a retailer, in a distribution center for, for your e-com business, and you're not hearing anything. Between the uncertainty at home, uncertainty in the news, a failure to communicate will just add another level of stress. Stress that no one needs. We all have enough stress from the current situation or from any crisis that we might be facing at a particular time. And so being certain that we're giving as much information as we reasonably can, and even sometimes if the com communication is just a touch base and a hello, if you're communicating, then you're de-stressing your team members because they know that someone has their back. Someone is thinking about the bigger picture and someone knows that every team member is important in this situation and in every situation. You know, um, Roger Enrico from Coca-Cola used to say that during times of information, no one is at the top of the pyramid everyone's in the middle, meaning that everyone should be talking across the center of the organization with everyone else. And he said that because he felt strongly that people had to have a voice to speak what was on their mind and ask the questions they have and had a right to hear back from their leadership on a regular basis. And that's what over-communicating in this sense is, making sure that your team members get what they need, the information they need, and the reassurance they need that someone is looking out 
for the business. And your people will be more confident if they hear from you regularly, you know, especially when they're facing this. And, you know, you can't help but harken back to a time when, you know, certainly it's a long time ago and not a time that I can relate to or many of us can relate to, but we've read about it in our history books. And that's the fireside chat that was established during World War II by President Roosevelt. And that he actually physically sat next to a fireplace and had a video completed where he would speak to the American public about the status of the war. And in the early days, the news was not good. And yet, by having that chat, by telling people what they needed to know in such a way that was inspirational as well, it kept people informed and willing to continue the good fight. And for retailers, it's the same today. Keep people informed and everyone will keep doing the good fight. And the good fight is being resilient and being successful in this time of complete change. I feel like this style of leadership is really dependent on a level of empathy that is in high demand today, in my opinion. Mm -hmm. How do you recommend people develop that level of empathy in their leadership? Because, uh, you know, over-communicating, I think, requires an understanding that other people in your company are not only dealing with the same crisis, but it is affecting them personally in ways that they might not imagine. Especially when we're dealing with something like COVID, there could be, uh, you know, team members in your organization who have family that uh, is sick, who have family that have died, who have... Uh, friends or family that have lost their jobs and are struggling during the recession side of COVID. And understanding that and empathizing with that, I think it creates a, a really authentic scenario where you as a leader would want to over-communicate and would want to assuage any of the concerns of their workplace because it's the last thing they need to stack on top of everything else, right? Yeah. But that obviously requires a level of empathy. So how do you recommend people develop that in their leadership? Well, first, you just said couple of great words, Daniel. You know, if you communicate and you're not authentic, you shouldn't be communicating. That simple. If you can't relate to the team members you're communicating with, then you have one of two choices. Develop the ability to relate to each person or each group, or find someone on your team who can represent you and be your ambassador. Because the last thing you want to do is communicate in a way that isn't authentic, because people will see right through that. And that will be worse in the long run than not communicating at all. Because no one wants at this time or any time spoken to, you know, in a condescending way, in a way that doesn't recognize their cultural differences, in a way that doesn't encompass and incorporate their points of view. So at the same time that you're communicating, it has to be a dialogue. And in order to have that dialogue, you have to be able to feel what your employees feel to some measure. And that's the foundation of empathy. And 
if you need some help knowing how to do that, then that's a great time to find a coach that can help you become better at relating to individuals that work on your teams. And building that empathy will lead to a closer workplace relationship for all of your team. It'll allow you to tell stories from your business experience that will help others grow in their business experience. And it will set a transparency across the organization that ultimately translates into higher employee engagement. And it, we haven't really spoken about employee engagement, Daniel, but over-communicating is really a crucial element of increasing employee engagement. And again, employee engagement is about action. It's about making sure everyone's on the same path to create the same actions for the organization. So you're right. Empathy is at the heart of it. It's at the heart of engaging conversation. And if it's an area that you know yourself, it's hard for you to make that movement from the boardroom floor to the store floor or distribution floor, then it's time to find someone who can help you make sure that people know how relatable you are as an executive or to make sure that you have a heck of an ambassador in another executive. All right, we're to our last main tip, Jackie. So we've gone through the first four. For tip number five, and this one is really honed on, uh, you know, we, we've kind of tracked uh, how to be a leader, how it relates to your business. We've tracked how to be a leader, how it relates to your employees. This one is really how to be a leader and how to find that for yourself. And this tip is just simply be courageous. Again, be courageous. How should leaders find that inspiration for courage? Where do you pull it from and how do you ground yourself as a leader to be courageous when the situation, a national or a company-specific crisis, is daunting or frightening? You know, I'm reminded of a couple of calls that I received in the early part of our time home during the pandemic. And, and one of the leaders said to me, Six people have asked me today for what to do about handling people that are experiencing illness or whether our business should shut down. How am I to be this expert? And how the heck is it that I have to answer and address these questions? Well, the truth of it is, whoever is in the organization, the executive that's responsible for operations or human resources is going to end up having to answer these questions. And you have to be courageous enough to know that embracing action is important and that addressing questions with reassurance will help everyone build resilience. None of us will have the answers to everything and few of us will have the bravery required of our first responders. Acting courageously is not about having the bravery that a first responder has to have to run into a burning building. But rather in business, it's the ability to embrace 
actions. And I've said this word now many times during this discussion today. It's about the willingness to embrace actions to support the business and the confidence to encourage reasonable risks by teams. This isn't a time to let a team handle something and know you're going to blame them in the future if it fails. This is about the confidence to allow people to take the necessary risks to run the business and to help them and support them if some of the issues don't turn out quite the way you want. It's the confidence to make sure that people know that they can act and have your support. It's intelligence to avoid the blame game when people make mistakes because dimensions change or because more facts become apparent. And it's truly the ability to reassure and wisdom to inspire your teams. You know, you spoke a minute ago, Daniel, about empathy and being empathetic with your team members during this time. Courage and empathy go hand in hand in this particular business time. It's about understanding the challenge of the single mom or single dad that's trying to figure out how they're going to educate their school-age children online during the first four weeks of the school semester or caring for a parent who can't get out right now or for people who have had to be furloughed and now are returning to the workplace and are looking for how do they fit in exactly after having experienced a furlough. And all of that comes from courageous leadership of helping those individuals build their business roles back up, be productive and supportive of their own family, and also being comfortable to speak to their managers, to their business leaders, about the situation that's affecting them. Remember, we've never been through anything like this, which has been so pervasive in every part of our life. And so making sure that you're leading your team members with resilience and instilling some of that resilience and some of that desire to thrive comes from your courageousness to speak to them, to address issues, to again, communicate with empathy, and to be willing to help everyone in the organization as we lead the best we can during these times. And for retailers, this is especially important because you need people on the front lines and those very same people are the people who are going to face having their children home during the mornings and trying to do school. At the same time, you want them in your stores. And so becoming very creative is really part of that courage. You know, I've heard several times about Lululemon and they spend 10 minutes before opening the stores, having a discussion with their team members about something that might get in their way 
of being productive that day. And when I first heard about that, and I knew the individual that had introduced that at Lululemon, and when I heard what he had done, implementing a plan, where at every Lululemon store they have a discussion about what's impacting their team members. I wasn't surprised that he had done that because he's very empathetic and very creative and a courageous leader. What I have been surprised about is the way team members have embraced that. And they've embraced it even more in these days of saying, I may not be as productive as I could be because I'm worried about my kids today. Taking away the fear of bringing personal life into the workplace in these trying times is true courage on the part of our leaders and something for every retailer to think about. You know, it's beginning to sound a bit trite, I think, sometimes when we say we're all in this together. But just as the young woman sitting next to me on the plane on September 11th needed reassurance that tomorrow would be okay, that's the same kind of empathetic leadership our people need today in every aspect of retail. And making sure you have that empathetic communication with the willingness to act rather than react and being bold enough to bring those five elements together will make your team far more resilient than the team that doesn't face those challenges together. All right, Jackie Werblow, I think that does it for our conversation today on the podcast. Again, we've been chatting with Jackie Werblow, founder and head coach of Convex Leadership. Jackie, thank you so much for joining us. Any final words here for our audience to wrap things up? Well, I just want to say thank you, Daniel, for this opportunity. As always, it was fun. I, uh, I think I probably um, sounded a little bit like an evangelist preaching about <laughs> communication. But I do think, you know, you hit upon it when you said empathetic communication, and it truly is at the heart of all of this. The more we talk, the more we are able to listen as one of the key elements of communications and then act upon what we know we can face tomorrow with confidence. Love that. And Jackie, if folks want to get in touch with you for your leadership consultation or just to learn more about some of these tips and outlooks you have on leadership styles, especially in a crisis, where can they learn more, get in touch with you? I would love you to visit our website, convexleadership.com. Uh, or of course, you can email me very simply at convexleadership at gmail.com. Jackie Werblow, thanks again for your time. Thanks, Daniel. And thank you, everyone, for listening to this episode of the podcast. If you like what you heard and want to listen to previous episodes, make sure you're subscribing on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. And make sure you're going to our website, marketscale.com industries, for a full breakdown of articles, podcasts, and videos from all of our B2B industries. Again, I'm your host, Daniel Litwin, the voice of B2B. Until next time.